Before we get into this episode of Josie and the Podcasts, there's something Blake and I wanted to flag up top, and that's pertaining to one of our guests who appears on this episode and a few future episodes about his work on the movie, Adam Schlesinger. As we've mentioned before, this podcast has taken us a year to make in between research and writing, and during the post-production, in fact, only a few weeks ago, actually, Adam passed away from complications to coronavirus in New York. Obviously, this news was devastating to us as massive fans of his work and of Fountains of Wayne, but also to the wider entertainment community at large because Adam was not only obviously super talented, and I mean, he was like probably the next person to get an EGOT, Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony, but he was he, he was an incredibly nice person and funny and sweet and really, truly so nice to us when we reached out in 2019 about the show. He put us on to a lot of other people and went above and beyond what you would expect a guest of his stature to do, especially for strangers like uh, strangers from Australia like we were. So we just wanted to mention up top that this episode and upcoming episodes feature our chat with Adam in case it's something that may be triggering or upsetting to you. We continue to be absolutely crushed by his loss, like millions of other people out there, and this ep is dedicated to him, his work, and who he was as a person. One, two, one, two, three, four. Josie and the Podcasts. Kia ora and welcome to Josie and the Podcasts, a six-part limited podcast series all about the 2001 cult classic Josie and the Pussycats. Hosted by me, best-selling author, journalist and screenwriter Maria Lewis. And produced by me, film critic and podcaster Blake Howard, behind shows like One Heat Minute, All the President's Minutes, Increment Vice and Contention and many more. We're officially at the halfway point of the show with three previous episodes on the history of Josie and the Pussycats as an Archie Comics spin-off character, development of the film in the late 90s, and last week's ep, production, which broke down the physical shoot itself in Vancouver, Canada. We've also been releasing bonus episodes every week and have turned out to be just as meaty, actually. Uh, we've covered how Archie broke the comics code which is an essential listen for all you film history buffs out there. We did a bonus episode on fashion of Josie and the Pussycats, including revealing my secret history of frosted tips. And there's actually one that's really relevant to this episode on Du Jour. Yeah, for real, that's one of my favourites, actually, getting to dedicate a whole bonus episode to DuJour and how that all came together. And just FYI, we're not glossing over the DuJour songs in this episode, uh, which is all about the soundtrack of the film. It's just that we already covered it on the bonus and the soundtrack is very dense material. Loaded. There's so many people that worked on it, contributed to it. There's a lot of info to get through. So we wanted to keep that conversation very specifically focused on Josie and the girls themselves. And to be honest, that's something we couldn't be more excited about because the soundtrack to Josie and the Pussycats? Well, I'll let Mo Shafiq from Mondo Records break it down for you. It's the best debut album by a band that doesn't actually exist while also being one of the greatest soundtracks to a 
2001 era music scene film you know like that there's no film that more accurately captures the 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 genre of music of that time at least here in the states right you know you're talking like right at the the the, the beginning of uh the, the ascent of uh your blink 182s and you know the the uh the, the prevalence of pop punk and emo in the music scene mo is officially one of the biggest dressing the pussycats fans out there like that could be his official title. It's not, but it could be. His official title is the record label manager at Mondo Records. And Mondo just generally as a company are heaven for frothy film fans. And in 2017, they put out the first ever vinyl pressing of Josie and the Pussycats soundtrack 16 years after the film had come out in 2001. There was also a reunion concert, and we're going to dedicate a bonus episode to that later, but that concert and the vinyl, complete with all new liner notes and interviews with writers and directors of the film, Deborah Kaplan and Harry Elfont, star Rachel Lee Cook and Letters to Cleo's front woman Kay Hanley and it came in this amazing package that was purple and kitty cat print it was very cool and Mondo in a lot of ways is like an accessible criterion it's highbrow but important pop cultural shit and a big part of the reason a Josie and the Pussycats vinyl exists is because Mo was not only a huge fan of the film but as a music professional he understood the significance of that soundtrack In fact, a lot of people might have been confused about the consumerism masquerading as identity message of the Josie and the Pussycats film, but people never struggled to connect with the music. Here's Mo. It was quite interesting to both make it a time capsule, not intentionally, but that it acts as a time capsule of a very specific movement of music that I was also quite fond of. Um, And I don't know if that's what draws most people to it, but I do know that like, there are some people who um, right now would look fondly upon the music they listened to when they were growing up, right? But there's also some people who sort of like, you know, put their nose up about it. Oh, I didn't know any better when I was a teenager listening to what music. But, you know, uh, for, for the people who would be familiar with uh, Total Request Live and the cultural impact of it, this sound is, is so baked into your brain as to what music sounded like um, that it's, it, it's, it's quite brilliant in its design in that way that it was such an effective parody and also sincere um, document, you know, it's, 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 it's so many things. I think about myself as far as being like a, a kid who was into music and, and the generation before me, right. When they would make mixtapes, there was probably some like very iconic, you know, eighties and, you know, seventies, rock songs and ballads and I think about the songs that I would put on mixtapes and it would be like from the Josie and the Pussycat soundtrack you know amongst other things and that uh, from that era and I think about how like that's the closest thing to putting an obscure song on right you know like unless you know like because if, if you hadn't seen the movie then you definitely wouldn't know who this was. As mentioned in our episode production the film is moving in earnest at Universal and as Deb and Harry are getting those proofs of the final script, scanning locations in Vancouver and locking down the trio of Pussycats and Rachel Lee Cook as Josie, Tara Reid as Melody and Rosario Dawson as Valerie, not to mention the rest of the cast, they're also having a juggle putting together the team that would go on to make the Josie and the Pussycats soundtrack. Now, you've heard Deb and Harry describe the film as a musical before, and it is for all intents and purposes, although not in a Sharks v Jets kind of way, but for a movie all about music and set within the music industry, obviously the music was crucially important. And that point Mo made about it being like this beautiful time capsule, that's pretty on the money because the Avengers-esque team Universal was able to bring together is, well, it's a fucking lot, let me say that. 
And it's probably best to be broken down into sections because there's people who came into work on one bit and not the others. There's people who got fired, then rehired for other sections. But someone who worked across all sections and at every point from conception to completion was 11-time Grammy Award winner, Kenny Babyface Edmonds. for a minute while I just weep at one of the most perfectly executed ballads in history, When You Believe, which was Babyface teaming up with two of his frequent collaborators, Winnie Houston and the woman I got my first tattoo for when I was nearly 18, Mariah Carey. Hashtag no regrets. To recap some of the finer details from the DuJour episode, given that Babyface had worked with everyone from Michael and Janet Jackson, Miss Jackson, if you're nasty, to TLC and Tony Braxton, his fingerprints are all over the DuJour songs on the soundtrack because he had cultivated that pop R&B sound that was dominating music charts in the late 90s, early noughts, particularly through the boy bands that DuJour parodies, including NSYNC, Boys to Man, and Drew Hill, who Babyface had all worked with on seminal hits. Also, it's extremely weird to keep saying baby and face together in sentences over and over again. Baby face, baby face, baby face. Baby face. Baby. It's like Candyman, but I'm a pervert. Um, so I'm going to switch to Kenny from here on out. And if you're not hella versed in his work, never fear. You've actually seen him before. Kenny Babyface Edmonds is not just the executive producer of the Josie and the Pussycats soundtrack, but he appears in the film as well, playing the dejected chief, as in the third member of hit 70s musical act Captain and Tennille, except in the world of the film, the duo was originally a trio, the Captain and Tennille and the Chief. Tony, Tennille and I, we, we wrote all the songs together. Captain just played piano. It, it, was, it was my idea to have him, have him wear that hat. I said, how you gonna be a captain if you don't wear a hat? <laughs> we did make some beautiful music together though. Big song, the one I was mostly responsible for was that love will keep us together. But guess what? It didn't. Get after a while, you know, they didn't want to share the spotlight no more. You know, sometimes that stuff happens. I can still remember though, Captain always said, friends first, the band second. Wish I had got that in writing. In a dodgy grey wig and mo, his outer monologue is supposed to be Valerie's inner monologue as she begins to question her part in the band after feeling left out, excluded and paranoid. But IRL Kenny was the captain, Tennille and the chief all rolled into one, which if you watched his Instagram live battle recently with Teddy, is this thing on Riley? You will know because he's dropping beats, playing the guitar while Teddy's buffering, singing. I mean... He can do it all. And he basically invented the DuJour sound. But as the EP of the movie's music, the DuJour sound was just a small part of it. Two songs, in fact, Backdoor Lover and DuJour Around the World. The rest of the tracks are a few covers, Money in brackets, That's What I Want, Real Wild Child, and an updated version of the Josie and the Pussycats theme song from the Hanna-Barbera animated series. 
But all up, that's five tracks on a 13-song album. And those other songs are the crux of it. They're supposed to represent the essence of what Josie and the Pussycats was, is, and what they could be. You're a star, one of the more underrated Josie Bops, I feel. It's a little grunge, a little indie, and a little pop punk, which wasn't yet a massive thing. It was still bubbling up at the time. That wasn't necessarily Kenny's type of deal, so the crew that were brought in to help out were pretty damn significant. Here's Harry. I think the thought was how do we, like, we, we're not songwriters. How do, when we have a movie where yes, it's now, like, but at the time, um, but it was how do we, we have a script where we talk about these great songs, we talk about hit songs, so it's, we knew we wanted there to be songs that were good, we didn't want them to suck, uh, and that thing you do had done it with one song that they just played over and over again, we need five songs at least that we could know sounded great, so it's how, do, how do you do that? And then Universal got in touch with Kenny Evans, who clearly knows how to do that, but he was excited because it wasn't his sound. He hadn't done kind of a pop rock, uh, you know, we talked about them being like a power punk pop band, and that wasn't his genre. So he was really excited to work in a genre that was different, and he was super open to, because Deb especially knew a bunch of musicians, and he was open to, yeah, let's bring all these people in, and let's find it. And then I think he brought Jane Weedland in also from the Go-Go's. Unless Dave, that was Dave. Dave, Dave did that? Oh, yeah, so then Dave really kind of led that process. There was Kenny, Ops, and his wife at the time, Tracy Edmonds, Adam Schlesinger from Fountains of Wayne, Adam Juretz from Counting Crows, Dave Gibbs from Gigolo Aunts, and then eventually Kay Hanley and Michael Eisenstein from Letters to Clear, who were married at the time and had just had their first child. That was the main crew. Then popping in for heat checks were Jane Wildland from The Go-Go's, Jason Faulkner from Jellyfish, Matthew Sweet, Steve Silk Hurley, and Anna Waronka, front woman of That Dog, Biff Naked, and Dee Dee Gibson. Like, it's a real pick and mix of musical talent, and it's wild to think about how cohesive the end result became. Part of that was to do with Dem and Harry, who not only wrote the lyrics for a bunch of the tracks, but were in close collaboration with Kenny to steer the soundtrack where they needed it to go. Is Deb, Harry, and Rachel talking about some of their favorite cuts from the album? I mean, I love Three Small Words. And I, 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 Pretend to Be Nice is pretty pretend great, to be too. Nice is a great yeah. song. We didn't write that one. The most, I feel like that. And Schlesinger knows his way around the hit. Huh? Yeah. Pretend to Be Nice, he had like sitting around. Like he had started, yes. like he had like a sketch of it or something. I don't know that it was a, like he grabbed it out of thin air. It was something that was just, you know. Idea Pretend to be nice is supposed to be the big hit of the movie, the track that propels the girls to stardom, and it gets a chunk of minutes in the film as it scores their success montage. It's also a track on the album that has just one songwriting credit, the late, great Adam Schlesinger. This is Adam Schlesinger. Um, that's who I am. Who am I? I'm a songwriter, musician, and uh, bass player sometimes, and uh, tambourine player sometimes. I do a lot of stuff. Hi, Maria from Australia. Good. How are you? <laughs> I was 
wasn't sure how many like rando calls you get from Australians reaching out about you know fucking Josie and the Pussycats. So I figured I would clarify. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, just a couple of weeks. Not yeah, just... Adam was probably best known for Fountains of Wayne, which was a band that was first formed in the 90s by him and his college mate, Chris Collingwood. Now, their debut album dropped in 1996, but they didn't have their biggest hit, the very Cars-esque Stacey's Mum, until 2003, right at the start of the noughts. They never really had a number one hit or even a top 20 hit, but Fountains of Wayne were a hugely important act for that era, and their influence is still found out largely thanks to the great songwriting and production of Chris and Adam. It was a type of accessible indie rock. Like, they paid their bills, they weren't that underground, but only one or two of your mates at the party might A, know who Fountains of Wayne were, or B, even know any of their songs. They made great albums and toured with everyone from Smashing Pumpkins to the Lemonheads. Here's my personal favourite Fountains of Wayne song, Hey Julie. Their music was infectious, great hooks, clever lyrics and an underlying sweetness you might not expect. Now, as they were blowing up as a band, in fact, simultaneously, Adam had been working in film and television. In fact, his first credit was as a music supervisor on House of Buggin in 95, which you may not know, but it has a sort of cult status for being the spiritual sequel to In Living Colour, which, as we know, was super crucial for representation in the US and US television. And it was John Leguizamo's breakout sketch comedy show. And just a year later in 96, Adam worked on Dana Carvey's sketch show, SNL, and Tom Hanks's directorial debut, That Thing You Do. <laughs> that Thing You Do, which saw him receive an Oscar nomination for Best Original Song with the track that gives the movie its title. I think that I always just had the attitude that I wanted to be involved in music in whatever way I could and that I wouldn't close any doors. I just, I'd rather be doing something involving music than having some other kind of job. So, you know, if somebody asked me to try something for a movie or for a television show or whatever it was, I just saw it as a, another chance to work really. And another chance to, you know, be involved with other projects and, work with different people but over the years um i i've come to like it more and more and i've come to sort of feel like i i i'm i'm good at writing when i have an assignment like that i'm probably better at that than just being told go make a record do whatever you want and sort of follow my own muse i mean i, I like being given some parameters so something like this you know the parameters were just we want it to sound like a hit, and, and and it's Josie and the Pussycats, and even that is kind of an assignment. This is a really long time ago, so I'm going to try to remember as much as I can, um, which is not that much at this point. But I I think that um, I think what happened was um, first I was asked by um, Deb Kaplan and Harry Elfont if I wanted to try to write a song for the movie, they were the writers of the movie. And I met with them 
in a hotel room in LA because I was, I think there with Fountains of Wayne, I think we were touring and, um, played them this idea. Well, they, they sort of described that they were looking for a song that was kind of like the fake hit of the movie. Um, and, um, I wrote this song called pretend to be nice and I, and I played it for them on, on guitar and they really liked it. And, and so I did a demo of that song and initially that was only my only involvement. That was Adam talking about how he originally got involved in the Josie and the Pussycats movie and pretend to be nice, maybe because of its placement in the film or its significance to the story or the fact it's just a fucking bop is frequently the one song that will roll off people's tongues as their favorite track on the album. And Adam really had a gift for making excellent fictional hits. Here he is again. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, for some reason, I'm better at writing fake ones than real ones. So I don't know. I mean, there's just, you know, I have friends that write songs and they're actual hits all the time. And I, for me, it's like there's some kind of crutch when somebody says, Oh, well, it's going to be a hit in this movie. We're going to just tell everybody it's a hit. And that helps it feel like a hit to people. So, But um, I think in the real world, for something to be a hit, there's just so many mysterious factors. And just having a catchy song is not the only thing. I mean, it's the artist and it's the promotion around that artist and the image and the, you know, there's just all these intangible things that make something a hit. Well, when I, when they first asked me to write a song, I had no idea who was going to be singing it or, or who producing it or anything. I mean, they just asked for a song and I thought it was cool to write a song for Josie and the Pussycats. So um, that alone was enough to, you know, for me to want to take a shot at it. Um, and I, but I, the thing that was cool is um, when I went, I remember I, I stopped by the studio I don't think they had actually started recording. I'm trying to remember. I mean, really, this is kind of all a blur, but I, I remember having a little sit down with Babyface in the studio, and I don't. I think they were cutting other songs at that point. And I played him either the demo or on guitar. I played him Pretend to Be Nice, and I, and I kind of sang the little hook part. But in my mind, that was going to be an instrument. So I was going like, and I said, I don't really know what that's going to be yet. Like, maybe that's going to be a guitar or something, or maybe it's horns. I don't know. And he's like, oh, are you kidding me? That's, that's a vocal. That's the hook. I mean, he was the one that was like, just let that be sung. Um, and uh, I think uh, I, I, when he said that, and he said it with like total producer confidence, like, no, this is what you have to do. And I was like, oh, okay, we're in good hands with this guy. Like, he's got this. gave them that demo and then they went and recorded it with uh um babyface was producing at that point he was producing the songs and they went in and did a version of it with um the letters to cleo folks playing on it and and um i stopped by the studio at some point but i wasn't really involved in the recording of my own song they, they did it and then sort of phase two of my involvement was Later on, when they were trying to fill out the soundtrack, I got a call from um, my friends at Playtone, uh, 
who had been involved with that thing you do. And I guess they were now doing the music for this movie and uh, asked if I wanted to produce the remaining tracks on the album. So I ended up producing a bunch of songs and playing on some stuff and working with Kay Hanley and Michael Eisenstein and the Letters to Cleo crew. And Into stage left, another seminal 90s act, Letters to Cleo. I'm Kay Hanley, lead singer of Letters to Cleo, and uh, Rachel Lee's Rachel Lee Cook's stunt voice double on Josie and the Pussycats. You've heard Deb mention that Boston connection earlier, and that's where the alt-slash-indie rock band were from. With their debut album, Aurora Gory Alice, dropping in... Great title. Great title, right? (laughs) Dropping in 1993, and the Five Sim building a steady following from there. In fact, they weren't dissimilar to founders of Wayne, and even Counting Crows in that they were successful. They weren't really underground, but they weren't mainstream either. They were generally hugely respected by the music industry and had this frothy cult fandom, but somehow that all intersected with pop culture on the regular. That happened in 1999 when Letters to Cleo appeared in 10 Things I Hate About You, not just once, multiple times as they play in a club, interact with the characters at the prom, play over the radio, and even close the movie by playing hundreds of feet up in the air on the rooftop of the fucking school where they filmed the movie <laughs> as a helicopter loops around and gets this nutso shot for the end credits, which is like such a 90s thing. I mean, there were more helicopters at the end of 10 Things I Hate About You than Apocalypse Now. <laughs> like, <laughs> truly, <laughs> truly. And just letting the credits roll over actual continued footage is peak 90s movies to me. I mean, they do it in Silence of the Lambs. I'm having an old friend for dinner. The Jackal. Oh, you got nothing on the Jackal? I'm going to let you do the dumb quotes. Look at I, daddy. I met him, you know. <laughs> the Fugitive. I don't care. And Twister. Oh, Aunt May. Bless her heart. Bless, bless Wayne. We love Wayne. Um, cow, another cow. You first heard from Kay Hanley in her episode production where she talked about taking Rachel, Tara and Rosario through a type of rock star band camp where they rehearsed their moves in a mirrored room. She'd always been a fan of Archie Comics as a property, but this, co-writing the songs and becoming the singing voice of Josie was not work that Kay was actively pursuing. Yeah, I mean, I was a very, very dedicated um, Archie Comics. I was more of a Betty and Veronica person. To me, the uh, Josie and the Pussycats stuff was a little ancillary. It didn't. It didn't pull me in the way the relationship between Betty and Veronica did, and you know that Jughead and Reggie and Archie, and that was all like, ugh. I just loved it so much. Um, so I knew peripherally. Uh, but and I knew the theme song to Josie and the Pussycats because who didn't? And um, but it, really, I was I didn't have a strong opinion about it about about the cartoon or the characters. To me, it was just like all of these weird experiences that we just kind of fell ass backwards into over a period of time. I mean, that was kind of the Cleo way. Just like shit would go down, and we'd be like, okay. I didn't really have any plans to get into that kind of work. Um, I had just had a baby. Uh, my daughter, Zoe Mabel, was probably about 10 months old when I got the call from my my friend, uh, Dave Gibbs, who was in a, another Boston band called the Gigalawants. He had moved to L.A. and he was kind of like, 
making a scene out in LA. He's living in like Adam Duritz from Counting Crows guest house. I thought it's so random, but like, I was just like, man, Dave is doing great out in LA. He's living in a guest house. And, um, and so he had started writing with uh, the people who were kind of like, so Deb and Harry were, were, um, were making the movie and they were, they found Dave to like start putting songs together. So um, they had said, so Babyface was producing the music and, and, um, and they had Babyface had like found this singer to be the voice of Josie. And they were out in LA, like making the demos for, for Josie. And so Dave was like, Oh my God, you got to get my friend Kay to come out here and she can be the voice of the pussycats. And, and so we got the call. So me and Michael, who was, who's my children's father, Letters to Cleo guitarist and um, father of my children, now my ex-husband. It's very complicated. Um, he, <laughs> we, we like loaded up baby Zoe, got on a plane and came out to do, I was going to do the voices, the voice of the Pussycats. And we had just planned to come out for a couple of days go into the studio and do that so when we got to Los Angeles in between us leaving Boston and getting to Los Angeles they had decided that they had fired the original Josie singer and they were like well maybe you could just think long story short it just put me in a position to like swoop in and take the job for myself it was like very much right place right time kind of thing Now flag that last line about the original Josie being fired, as she was, in a way. Her name is Dee Dee Gibson, and she's credited as the songwriter on tracks You Don't See Me and One of My Personal Loves Come On. She had come from an all-black, all-girl rock band out of Atlanta called Edith's Wish, which had sprung up in 95, and Dee's story is pretty bloody fascinating. So much so that we're dedicating this week's entire bonus episode to it. So if that's something you're interested in, prep your ears because that's coming on Wednesday. The reason I said fired in a way is because K2 got fired in a way. It's almost impossible now to see anyone else's voice coming out of Rachel Lee Cook's mouth in the movie. But in K's words, that was a very likely possibility. Well, I'll spill the tea a little bit. Um, (laughs) Spill that tea. I... I did not. So the story is a little bit longer than I originally told you. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna expand. Do it. Um, So when we got to LA, and I started, um, you know, going into the studio to sing these songs that Dave, my, my very dear friend, Dave Gibbs had written with a variety of people like, you know, uh, Jane Weedlin and uh, Anna Warrenker and, you know, and Adam Duras, you know, he had just been like making the rounds, writing these songs. So Dave was kind of like, he really wanted me to get this job, but I was not a shoe in and, but I didn't know that. So I was like going to the studio every day and, you know, with, and we had like extended our stay and, um, you know, I would go in and I would do my best to sing the songs and everyone was just, but it's real singing for me is like, it's not easy. It doesn't come very easily. And it's like kind of an emotional thing. And if I get 
flustered or what, like, I just can't do it. So I felt like all of a sudden, like all this pressure to like, and also, by the way, back up a little bit. I don't, I never considered myself a singer either. Like I was the singer in Letters to Cleo only because I wrote the lyrics and there was no one else to sing them. So like I sang them, but like, I didn't, I never wanted to be a singer. It just kind of happened. So that that's all background. So now I'm going into the studio every day with, uh, you know, Dave and, uh, and Babyface and uh, Deb and Harry and everyone's kind of like, you know, I'm at the microphone singing these songs, which I've also never sung anybody else's songs either. So that's another thing. And like looking at them, they're talking to each other in the sound booth and I'm singing and I'm just like, oh my God, what is happening? So it was just like, it was like very, it was really created a lot of angst for me. Like I just didn't, I didn't understand what was happening. And so I would go back to the hotel. Michael and I would have dinner with the baby and hang out. And and then they'd be like, oh, well, take tomorrow off. And I'd be like, okay. And then I'd come back the next day and there'd be like CDs of like all my friends' bands, like as if they had been as if, as if like Deb and Harry and Babyface and everybody had been scouting all of my friends' bands to see if they would do a better job than me. So it was really awful, actually. And so finally, um, I got a call from, so, so I'm there for like three weeks and I'm just like, this is awful. And I felt really bad and I remember Michael and I, they asked me to take another day off and I'm like, I'm here with a baby. <laughs> like I got to go home at some point, you know? And, um, I got a call from my manager saying that an unnamed, I'm someone that I will not name because I'm friends with her, um, said so-and-so is on a plane right now to audition for Josie. And I was like, fuck this. I'm going home book us plane ticket we're leaving and we did <laughs> and then a couple of days later I got a call from Babyface, and he was like will you come back and I was like why and he was like I just I really feel like you should be the person to do this I want you to do this and I was like okay and I came back oh my god that's how it all really went down tea officially spilled now we'll be back in one moment following this message from our sponsors You've heard frontwoman Amanda Wilkinson on the show. Now check out her music as part of the critically acclaimed duo, Bossy Love. The Guardian called them infectious, like Prince on a trampoline. I love that. And they've also been called one of the most exciting bands on the planet right now by BBC Radio 1. You need Bossy Love in your ear holes. Bossy Love's new album, Me Plus You, is out for you to now buy for those physical media heads or for you to stream and cherish forever, along with the fucking baller lead single and video, Me Plus You. For show dates, merch, and much, much more, check out bossylove.com or click on the link in our show notes. Diva Headwraps, a headwrap brand that encourages women to embrace their individuality by expressing their very own style. Be bold, be adventurous, be confident. Revive your inner queen and get your very own Diva Headwraps crown on. They're also doing online tutorials now while everyone is in ISO, so if you've always wanted to experiment but didn't know how, here's your chance. Check out their online store at www.divaheadwraps.com for a unique range of head wraps in a variety of fabrics, colorful designs, and exclusive prints. 
The link is in our show notes. Although the road to get there and to get locked in as Josie's singing voice hadn't been smooth at all and had kind of been a shitty situation, there were some really special moments for Kay Hanley as well. Here she is talking about one of them during the recording of her favourite track on the album. Well, my favourite one is uh, Pretend to be Nice because, I mean, duh. (laughs) But in terms of like from my own experience, um, I... The one with the, wait, do you want me to tell you like the best behind the scenes one? Like the best story, the best one? Okay. So I, I, as I mentioned, not, uh, never considered myself a vocalist up until I've just gotten the job for real from Babyface. And now I'm running around to all of Babyface's studios and his house and you know he's just like it's crazy how how much how many places he has to record in LA so we're at his home studio in um in Beverly Hills and I he we're gonna do you don't see me and I was like you know what Kenny I was like I can't I I'm I'm not like a singer singer I don't know how to sing like this I don't know how to do this song and he was like what what are you talking about you're not a singer and I was like I you know I'm not like a singer and he's like uh you're definitely a singer and I was like hmm I kind of filed that away like oh babyface thinks I'm a singer that's interesting and <laughs> and so we he just basically just like co was so gentle with me in the studio and like the opposite of what it was like when I first came out and everyone's whispering in the studio in the control room and I'm like freaking out. It was like, it was just him in the control room, me in the booth. And he just like coaxed this. So like, like a, like a father, you know, teaching a child how to like walk or ride a bike or, but like, it was just so gentle and so encouraging and like, And I really felt like, and he just got me to sing that song in that way. I'd never sung a ballad. I'd never had any interest in singing a ballad. And, um, and so to me, like hearing that song is just such a reminder of what you can do if you have someone supporting you and mentoring you. And I'll, I'll never forget him for that. Like the way he, he, I mean, he, he was a life-changing presence in my life. Like I'll, there was like in, in a million different ways, but that was just an example of like his kindness and his impact on me. In fact, a lot of the people we spoke to had nothing but lovely things to say about Kenny Babyface Edmonds, including one of the singers brought in to do backup vocals and another cult 90s figure, Biff Naked. Hi, this is Biff Naked, and you're listening to Josie and the podcast. Oh my gosh, it was such a thrill. I was uh, on tour at the time in America, and it was my record company, Lava Records, uh, that uh, I guess just told us about the opportunity. And uh, and for me, of course, to, to be able to work with Babyface was like the the thrill of my lifetime you know it was uh, uh i don't know i was a huge 
uh, Tony Braxton fan. Might sound random, but I was a massive, massive fan. So um, just to have the opportunity to work with him, uh, it, it could have been on anything. It could have been on you know anything, and I would have been uh, completely thrilled. Uh, but to be able to harmonize with Kay Hanley, you know, of whom I was such a huge fan, Trues and Letters to Cleo, um, was, you know, it was like a dream come true as far as uh, being a vocalist. For me, it was just such a, it was a huge opportunity just to sing. That descriptor of Letters to Cleo, Fountains of Wayne, Counting Crows being that cult cool thing that unexpectedly crossed over into pop culture at times, that 10,000% applies to Biff Naked as well. She was big in Canada and was crossing over into the US in the 90s with her music being used in shows like The West Wing, Daria, Charmed, Roswell, and of course, Buffy, where she popped up playing herself singing her track Lucky as Buffy slow dances with Sunnydale's resident fuckboy, Parker. <laughs> I say to you, except I love you, and I give my life for yours. I guess that that song is the one a lot of folks know Biff for because it's a lot slower than most of his stuff, including things like Moment of Weakness, which is heavier rock and not dissimilar to something like The Offspring's hit The Kids Aren't Alright, which Biff actually popped up in the video clip for. But according to Biff, the opportunity to be involved in a Josie and the Pussycats film was an unexpected delight and the recording process even more so. It was incredible. I had, uh, you know, I've been uh, a recording artist since, oh, Oh, like 1990. So this was like, you know, 10 years into my career already. And it was like, uh, as far as recording experiences go, you know, I had started in punk rock bands where we did, you know, all of us in the studio at the same time. And we only had like a day to get 20 songs done kind of thing. Uh, So I was quite accustomed to working under pressure and in kind of lousy situations for recording, actually, as a vocalist. You know, some of these icky, icky studios that have, you know, old dusty carpets that just make any vocalist really stuffed up. And, you know, it's a, it's kind of stressful. There's a lot of pressure to get things done in a hurry. So I was very accustomed to that type of um, mood and atmosphere, I suppose. And uh, it was, uh, Kay wasn't actually there. Her parts were already done. And so what I had to do was uh, the alto harmonies, basically, um, and, and sing, ma- basically try and match match it and double it and and do all this stuff. And working with uh, uh, Kenny Edmonds as a producer was just, I mean, it was like a gift, you know. No one had ever been so polite uh, to work with. He was so polite, and uh, everyone in the studio was so lovely and the studio was gorgeous and it was just like it was amazing it was just an amazing working environment and um uh, it was i don't know it was a thrill it was just a thrill it was the best uh, one of the best recording experiences of my life you know at the time you know uh, tara reed um you know was was uh, very famous and uh and it was cool man i mean 
you know, they came in while we were doing our recording session. I think they did a uh, a news feature on the actresses in the film. And so they all came into the studio and kind of, you know, lip sync uh, part of the song into the mic uh, for, you know, part of their their news shot. And, uh, and man, it was just like the whole thing was just a thrill. You know, uh, I think they I think um, Ed, the Edmonds flew me first class. So I've never flown first class before that. It was just the, the whole experience was just a dream. Biff had such a good time and is such fond memories of the crew and the work that she has a hard time picking a favorite track from the album. Honestly, every single song was was my favorite you know and again it's like doing an alto harmony to anything uh anything and of course anything babyface was doing (laughs) (laughs) mr wonderful in a studio i assure you uh the most polite producer anyone can ever work with um i don't know maybe uh maybe they'll revisit it i'm a punk rock punk queen That song you just heard is Three Small Words. It opens the soundtrack and it's also the first Josie and the Pussycats song you hear them play in the movie when they're still just the riot girl grunge babes from Riverdale and not the superstars they're destined to become. I used to perform that song over and over again in the mirror after the movie came out. Wait, used to? (laughs) You may have seen me doing it uh, last night. I used to pretend that I was a punk rock prom queen when I was at best a blue light disco court gesture <laughs> at the local PCYC. It's fast and kick ass and slaps you in the face from that first line. And that's a big part of the reason Rachel, Deb and Harry love it too. I love how fast three small words is. I love like just that hard, hard, hard fast. Well, the people who say they've started a band after watching the movie say like that was the song I heard. Yeah, yeah. Because it's such a challenge. I mean, I felt terrible for Tara having to drum to that. It's hard. I felt actually worse for because the, the drumming yeah. is fast, but it's that repetitive strumming will give you. I mean, you can get a bad cramp. Yeah, bad cramp. <laughs> you really can. Yeah. Yeah, if you're not great at it and you're faking it, you like cut up the tops of your fingers a little bit. So did you get a lot of injuries from that? Like <laughs> that guitar's not light either. I have it in my house. It's heavy. It's so heavy. It's not a light electric guitar. <laughs> we found it was it a in terrible a... shape. It was a poncho. You found it in a poncho. Because we had another guitar picked out. It was that kind of green SG looking thing. Uh, and we didn't love it. It was just fine. And then we were just, while we were scouting, I think we were no plunger. We were like, "Oh, there's the guitar. That's it." That's so cool. That's amazing. And I had Alan M's guitar until a few years ago. I don't know what happened to it. That weird hmm. Fender acoustic. It was like a Fender acoustic, but it had been like retrofitted. It had a steel bar inside, and I don't know what happened to it. Adam's own favorites were a little more unexpected, I guess especially given so much of the spotlight is drawn to three small words and pretend to be nice with them coming on early in the album and also in the movie. Oh man. Um, 
I'm trying to remember. I mean, I I remember that I really liked um, uh, um, well, I don't know if it was my favorite, but there's this one song called "Come On" on there that like has like ten thousand writers on it. Come on, uh, come on, yeah, mate, we know. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think that's one of the ones that I produced, and and I just remember thinking it was funny because in the end it's like a really simple song, but when you look at the credits, I think just about everybody threw something into that song. So. I, I liked it for that reason that everyone everyone put in their two cents. I love Shapeshifter. Oh, I mean, Shapeshifter sounds like just like a great Letters to Cleo single. Now, as the Mondo man who understands this album and its pop cultural history intimately, gotta say Mo remains impressive in his choices for best tracks off the Josie and the Pussycats album, as they're unexpected too. Here he is. It changes uh, quite a bit, <laughs> you know. Um, I, I'd i say that uh, Thin Around is definitely, I think, my favorite song on the album, though Pretend to Be Nice is, is right very close to that, and um, You Don't See Me. And then, like, if I had to then say, like, what's, like, my low-key, like, non-side A uh, favorite, I'd say Shapeshifter. That's a song that when I um, was more actively uh, a guitar player, I would play the opening riff to Shapeshifter all the time as, like, warm-up. Um, it's just, it's, it's baked into my brain. I, like, can, you know, still play it to this day. Spin around, come back home, you're running out on a line. Sometimes feel I'm going out of my mind. The whole Josie and the Pussycats album from beginning to end has immense replay value, even if it is so different from most of the work that she's known for back then and now. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I love it to this day. You know, the thing about it is um, uh, harmonies are just fun. They're fun to sing. And uh, and I felt that my my voice kind of uh, worked well with Kay's, which was, again, a thrill it's a huge thrill for me. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you uh, have an opportunity to speak with Kay regarding this film at all, but um, there's a, uh, a band that they do in, in uh, New England called Band of Their Own. And it's a lot of girls that I look up to to this day that are still in this band, and they do covers of uh, female bands, and they play charity gigs all the time in Boston and Chicago. And uh, they, I think they just had one in Chicago last month. And again, it's, you know, it's her fantastic voice and even amazing, amazing people 
still harmonizing with her, like Tanya Donnelly and Gail Greenwood. And, uh, and it's just, it is just so cool. You know, her, her voice is, uh, stands the test of time. And to hear, to hear the soundtrack, I think that it, it would be just as popular today as it was when the film came out. And it was popular when it came out, like a moderate success at least. The Josie and the Pussycats album, it dropped in March 2001, just a few months before the film would be released in the hope that it would help generate buzz and whatnot. It sold more than 500,000 copies in the US, making it a certified gold album. And it was really popular over here in Australia and in New Zealand. Like every cool chick I knew my age had it, was playing it and knew it line for line, which was a bit surreal for Adam. Oh, I don't, I mean, I guess it was a hit. I mean, was it a big hit in Australia? Was it because Oh my God. Oh, feel- let me tell you, it was seminal. <laughs> like oh, I, really? yeah, I mean, I, it's interesting because I, I don't honestly think it was that big a hit in America. I mean, I think it was like, it did all right. But it wasn't like this smash hit album. I mean, it was it was still kind of a cult thing. It's that, I know that it's been a, a movie and a record that has sort of found a, uh, its own light afterlife, and and um, and I think that's awesome. And I think especially with that kind of power pop punk pop stuff, it it sometimes takes some unusual exposure to get people to pay attention to it. But once they actually pay attention to it, they they like it. On April 1 of this year, at just 52, Adam Schlesinger passed away due to complications from coronavirus in Poughkeepsie, New York. We interviewed Adam in August of 2019 for the show, and I think I can speak for the both of us when I say it meant a lot to me and Blake. We were both big founders of Wayne Heads, and we spoke to a lot of people for the show. So many, in fact, some interviews won't make it to air, but Adam was one of our favorites, not just in how interesting and funny he was to talk to about his work on Josie, but for how nice he was to us off air, over email and on the phone and hooking us up with other Josie talent and just being an all-round rad guy in the brief time that we dealt with him. Following the news of his death, there was an outpouring of grief from his friends and colleagues like Tom Hanks, Kay Handley, and his frequent collaborator on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and the show's star and co-creator, Rachel Bloom, who said, I have so much to say about Adam Schlesinger that I am at complete loss for words. He is irreplaceable. We couldn't agree more. This past week, Fountains of Wayne reunited in honour of Adam with the three remaining members, Chris, Jody, and Brian, playing at the Jersey for Jersey concert to benefit the New Jersey Pandemic Relief Fund. We've included links to where you can donate to that fund in our show notes. Coming up on the next episode of Josie and the Podcats, release. Josie and the Pussycats are on the cover of Entertainment Weekly as they lead the slate of spring releases for 2001. But that fairy tale ending eludes the cast and crew as the movie flops at the box office and seals the film's fate as an underappreciated cult classic. Be sure to subscribe to this show so you're the first to know about all the upcoming episodes and some bonus ones, including one this week about the OG singing voice of Josie and songwriter on the album, Dee Dee Gibson, and how that weirdly ended up tying in with Ashley Murray, the woman who plays Josie now on the hit Archie Comics TV series, Riverdale. If you like this, du jour means chuck us a rating and review to help other people find the podcast as well. This episode of Josie and the Podcasts was researched, written, and presented by me, Maria Lewis. And produced by me, Blake Howard. Our podcast artwork was done by the immensely talented Amy Reid, who you can find on Instagram at, at ai.me.me or via email at amy.reid0310 at gmail.com. And our jerkin theme is courtesy of Amanda Wilkinson and Edwin Organ. Amanda's band Bossy Love's new album, Me Plus You, is out now.
And if you know someone who's hearing impaired who would enjoy the show, written versions of every episode, including the bonus eps, are available online at Graffiti with Punctuation. The link is in our show notes. Until next time, who's a rock star? Josie in the podcast.